hope you can open your Bibles to Mark 11. Continuing through the text, as a matter of fact, we're going to look at a sandwich today. We were uh, scuba diving this past week. I'm going to tell you, there's nothing like going under the water where there are no styrofoam cups, no old license tags, and just see a pristine beauty that God created, and you realize what really happened to this world. I mean, there's just an enormity and a grandeur to the beauty God has. And when we came up from diving, we entered into a ferocious debate over, at lunch, the correct way to eat an Oreo cookie. And there's a theologically correct way and a theologically incorrect way. I love my wife, but she eats it incorrectly. Oh, give me a break. She takes the two things apart, licks the middle, and then eats the two wafers. It's <laughs> One more error in the church that I need to correct. That's why we're here today. Theologically correct way is you take that thing, you don't break it up, you just shove it in your mouth and you chew the whole thing. You can look at the white stuff, but you put it back together and you eat it. That is what we're going to do today. Now we've looked at the white part of a section in the Gospel of Mark, and now we're going to bring the two wafers together, put them on top of that, and we're going to chop the whole thing today. What we looked at a few weeks ago, the white part of the Oreo, was Jesus running everybody out of the temple. Now, remember, the crowd is amazed, Greek word, they are blown away by not what he did, not by tables being turned over, not by money being left, not even by the ferocity of the charge, not by him looking at the men and saying, don't pick anything up, boys, just get out of here. So there's money on the floor. They're not even amazed at that. The Bible says that they are amazed at his teaching. They were shocked to learn that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer. As a matter of fact, when you go back to the passage he quotes and the passage at Solomon's dedication of the temple when he prays, the whole point of the temple was it was a place where Israel could face and pray as a nation and that God would hear their prayer, he would react to their prayer, he would honor their prayer, and as a result of that, Gentiles would hear about it, come to Jerusalem, see what's happening, and they would embrace Israel's God. And when Jesus shares this, the people in the temple, because the bad people are gone, it's just Jesus, the disciples, and the normal people, people like us, and they're sitting in there, and they're amazed because they have never heard this in their entire life. They have no Google. They have no Internet. They can't go to the library, really. All they've got are these guys who have just been run out who have never told them this. Now, that's the filling. That the temple was meant to be the place where a Jew would face, he would pray, God would react to that prayer, and that reaction that would be seen in the world that the rest of the world would look at and go, wow, there's a God in Israel. 
Now that's the filling. We're going to eat the whole thing here today. Watch. Mark 11, beginning in verse 12. Remember now that on the Monday, the last Monday of the life of Jesus Christ, it says, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, next section is what we just looked at, the interior of the Oreo. And now we come to the other wafer or part of the sandwich. Look in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to his roots. And who remembered? Peter. You got to love this guy. I'm telling you, he's the guy in school we all hated. He just wanted to take him out in recess and do horrible things to him. I actually remember doing some of those things to some of those boys. Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look, fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, listen to Jesus Christ. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. Now, here's an interesting way. I'm going to read you from the English Standard Version, but the Greek's a little different. But believes uh, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. It's an interesting little phrase there. Believe is present tense in the, present tense in the Greek, that what he says will already have come to pass, is actually past tense in the Greek, and then it will be done for him is future tense. So you have all three tenses inside the Greek, all in the section of Jesus. So what he says is, if you keep on believing that something has already occurred, it will occur for you. Now there's exactly what Jesus Christ says. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it, it will be yours. What is the temple supposed to be? A house of what? Is God supposed to answer that prayer? Absolutely. Has he been doing that? No. How do we know that? Because they're in exile. They weren't supposed to be in exile. They were supposed to be a republic like we are in America. But they're not. They're in exile under the hand of Rome. Within about 30 years, the entire nation will be destroyed and ruined until 1948. So... Their prayer is not being answered in the temple. He says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And wherever, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now the next part that's kind of a sequel to this is the authority of Jesus Christ and our authority as Christians, which we're going to look at next week. But we're going to stop right there. Now, Walk with me. You got the middle of the Oreo, which is how it's supposed to be a house of purpose, not. They're supposed to be praying in a way that God answers, and it's not happening. Jesus starts into Jerusalem on Monday morning after the triumphal entry, sees this fig tree that is, doesn't have any fruit on it, and he curses it because it is a metaphor for the nation of Israel. 
They're supposed to be bearing fruit, but they are not. And so he curses his fig tree as a symbol, an emblem, a picture of what Israel is. The fig tree should be bearing fruit, but it is not bearing fruit. And therefore he curses it as an example of what is about to happen in Israel because they are about to be cursed by God and they will not bear fruit. They don't bear fruit today. They're coming back. And as they walk back by, Peter looks and goes, Hey, Jesus. Things withered up. Cool. He's just kind of shocked. He doesn't get the significance because why? He's Peter. So he gets the significance. And then Jesus makes this weird two-pronged statement to him. He says, you know what, Peter? If you had faith, you could move a mountain. If you were to pray correctly, if you were to pray and believe that you already have what you prayed for, then God would give it to you if you do that. Now, before we walk through this, I have to say this every time. Before we walk through this, let's remember that when he says that, it doesn't mean I can pick and choose what I decide I want moved, what mountain I want moved. I mean, to me, Mount Rushmore is in the wrong part of America. It should be somewhere in Texas. So what we should do as a church is just drive up there which Dakota is it? I never remember. South, North? South. I never remember that. Who, who cares about those Dakota things? So we need to drive up there as a church, and we need to take this passage for what it says, and we need to walk up there as a church and stand in front of Mount Rushmore and say, in the name of Jesus, we claim the movement of this mountain. Now I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Nothing. We're going to look like a bunch of morons. Because you can't pull that little verse out, out of the Bible, run over here and say, okay, I'm going to pray whatever I want, and I'll get what I want because I have faith. That is not what he says. We already know from the rest of Scripture, James 5, 1 Kings, 1 John 5, we already know. I'm to pray based on what? What God tells me to pray. I don't get to pray what I want. I pray what he tells me to pray. Why? Because who is he? God. Who am I? Not God. So it's a real simple concept. The God tells the not God what to pray. And if the not God prays what the God tells him to pray, then the God will honor the not God's prayer. You got that? I mean, it's really pretty simple. So... Doesn't mean I can go out here and move Mount Rushmore unless God tells us to do that and we'll just move it to Hearn. Now, because they need some economy. So, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that if He does tell me to pray for something and I pray it, no matter how difficult it would be to have the prayer answered, God will answer the prayer that he moves me to pray. So I'm responsible for really three things. 
I'm responsible for hearing what he wants me to pray. Two, I'm responsible for praying that. Three, I'm responsible for believing that he will honor what he has told me to pray about. There it is, real simple. Should I do that? Then according to Jesus Christ, my life will move mountains and impact and bear fruit. The same fruit that the temple was supposed to bear. Matter of fact, today now, in this room, we have about 2,000 temples. That's not where he dwells anymore. The Bible says now that he dwells in those of us that are blood-bought. says we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So now there's like a couple thousand temples in this room, all of whom can bear fruit that the original temple was meant to bear. Now it can be borne by thousands of people because we are now possessors of the Holy Spirit. So we are required by God to bear fruit. You see, does it really work? So what what you're telling me is I've got to do all these great miracles. No. Let me, I want you to go with me somewhere. Go with me to, uh, 1 Thessalonians. 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians. I want you to look with me at a couple of things. 1st Thessalonians, Thessalonians 4 9. Now listen to this. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. But that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So, does he say anything about miracles there? What does he say? Just love each other. To aspire to live... What's the next word? Loudly? Quietly. What does that mean? I'm not... Not everybody... It's supposed to die on the village in Ecuador on the beach being a missionary. Not everybody's supposed to be in China. Not everybody's supposed to be a loud life. The vast majority of us, 98% of us, are required by God to lead a quiet life. In other words, what does that mean? I just get up and do what God tells me to do in the morning. I go to work. I brush my teeth. I live. I love quietly. To mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he tells his church, right? Now, if you go, let, me, let me just tell you something. If you go to any college conference, a massive big conference where they have all these college kids come in, they're never going to read that verse to you. They're going to tell you, do great things for God. Go out and move mountains. Do all, and they're going to quote all these other verses. They're never going to read this verse because this is anti what most people really think we ought to be doing. We should be charging and moving forward and we ought to have a sword. We need to be running out. Listen, what God says is just do it holy. Yeah. You say, well, what's going to come from that, preacher? Well, turn to chapter 1. Verse 4. 
For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth where? Everywhere. So that we need not say anything. He tells these people, look, you imitated us. What Paul did in Thessalonica is what he did in every city. He went in, he made tents during the day. When he had the opportunity, he preached, gathered some people around him, told them about Jesus. They embraced Christ, pulled them out of the culture, didn't try to change the culture, pulled them out of the culture, discipled them, went on to another town. Those people started a church. They did exactly what he said. They went to work. They did their jobs. They loved their families. They loved their wives. They were faithful. They raised their children correctly. And in time, just that simple living, believing in Jesus Christ lifestyle moved the gospel out of that city into the the entire world because it's not whether or not we move Mount Rushmore it's whether or not God tells us how to pray we believe what he says we pray and we let him make the difference it does work the Jews are amazed at Jesus because they have no idea that they're supposed to pray in the temple. They can't fathom that. So they don't pray, so there's no fruit. And we're going to look at this in a couple weeks. When Jesus went to Gethsemane, how many times did he ask God to let the cup pass from him? How many times? Three, right? Three times. So the battle was pretty fierce for him, wasn't it? Matter of fact, his capillaries and his sweat glands, so emotional that they burst and blood comes out with his sweat because it's just so difficult for him, right? Now here's my question. He took three guys, Peter, James, and John, pulled them over, and he turned and he said, Now, boys, I need you to pray for me. Only time I can find in the Gospels where Jesus made that request. Need you to pray for me right now. Goes over, prays, not done. Comes back to them. Why does he come back to them? Why doesn't he just stay here? He's not done. He's kneeling. He's praying. He's praying to God. Why doesn't he just stay here until he gets it? Why does he three times walk back to these guys? Because he is desperate for them to pray. Because if they pray, his battle will be less. The reason he comes back is the battle is so intense. If they pray, and he's the one that told them to pray and what to pray and they ignored it and the battle was massive in his life I'm going to tell you my own take 
I don't think he would have had to go but once if they had prayed. But they didn't. And they bore no fruit on this day because they did exactly what the Jews were doing in the temple and did unfortunately at times what we do in our own lives. We're so busy looking for all the big stuff. All he wants us to do is pray. What he tells us to pray and believe that. You say, why? Okay, how do, how do I know whether or not I have enough belief? That would be a fair question. I think he subtly answers it in Mark 11. When right after he tells Peter, you believe you can move a mountain, right after he does that, he says, oh, and by the way, you need to forgive people. Now listen to me. The way you know whether or not you have enough faith to take a prayer that God puts in your heart and pray it in a way that he answers and he moves, the way you know whether or not you have that prayer is by whether or not what God tells you to do is in your life. We have this cross here that is the centerpiece of our sanctuary. Now that cross tells me a couple of things. It tells me that I'm bad. I don't want to hear that, but I am. It equally tells me that I can become good because his blood can wash away my sin. And number two, the righteousness that he went to the cross with can be given to me so that I can have my sin removed and I can have his righteousness. And when I see that cross, I know that he loves me. Now, if I really believe that, if I really believe that, the stuff I do that put him on that cross, I don't want to do anymore. Would that make sense? And the things he did holy, I want those in my life because, again, I don't want to not do what he wants me to do if I really believe that. If I believe in Jesus in a way that it translates into the fabric of my life, then I have enough faith to honor a prayer the Holy Spirit places on my heart that he will move and it will transform lives. Let me be clear today. I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians 2. Take a little short right. I want you to be clear of who you are. Now I want to say one thing and then we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2. Now listen to me, please. We have elections coming Tuesday. I got that. Now listen to me. I believe you ought to vote. Because that's the requirement of your government on you in this culture. Now listen to me. Our job as Christians is not 
to change our culture. That is not our job. Our job is to find the people in our culture that other people have prayed for or that God has orchestrated on our heart to pray for and when they come to Jesus to pull them into this body and turn them into disciples. That's our job. It's not to change the culture. What we will look at next Sunday morning, you cannot expect a culture that does not live under our authority to believe what we believe and to understand what we understand. They can't do that. So our job is not to change our culture. And I know people say, well, we've gotten really bad in America. No, I, I, let me tell you something. I know we're a little worse. I got that. We have never been a saved nation. You need to get that out of your head. Were we founded on Judeo-Christian principles? Absolutely. Have we left those Judeo-Christian principles? Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. But there's a difference between a guy saying, I like the stuff the Bible says, and surrendering to the cross of Jesus Christ. They're not the same thing. We've thought from I don't know how long that because the American culture agreed with our morality, well, they must be okay. And now they don't agree with us, and now we're talking about, oh, what a horrible thing. Let me tell you something. I think it's great because it gives us a chance to stand out and stand up and stand on the line with Jesus Christ without meanness, without cruelty, and say, we believe something different than you believe, and our God can change your life. And now our prayers begin to bear fruit. How powerful are we? Unbelievably. Look in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, that is the coming of the Antichrist, will not come, or the coming of Christ, I'm sorry. For that day when Christ comes will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now that's the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. One day the Antichrist will show up in Jerusalem, sit down in the temple and look at the Jews and the Muslims and say, I'm the one, not Jehovah not Allah. It's me. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now listen to this. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. I love that. The Antichrist is just a punk and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. He just sees him coming and drops down like a baby. Now, why is he not here today? Why do we not see him? Because we're here. What he's talking about is the Holy Spirit inside each one of us. It's why I believe with every passion of my heart, and if you don't agree with this, I'm totally fine, but I believe with every passion of my heart, there's coming a day, the last seven years on this planet, and at the beginning of those seven years, God is going to take the church and pull it up. Now, let me be clear. All this junk you've heard on TV and in these goofy little books is insane. 
We're not going to disappear. We're just going to die. Our bodies are going to be left here. We're going to die just like everybody's ever died. We're going to die. And our soul and spirit are going to be with Jesus. And when we are taken out of the way, then the Antichrist can come. He can't do a thing as long as we and the Holy Spirit in us is in this world. We restrain that dog because of the Holy Spirit in us. When though he takes us home, now there's nothing left to restrain him. His arrival will be swift and pure. And if you believe what Jesus is in the temple, what you find is this. There aren't that many churches anymore that believe what that book says. There aren't that many churches anymore that live under the authority Jesus Christ is going to talk about next Sunday morning. There just aren't that many. So the vast majority of churches today will still be intact when the real believers are gone. But when we're gone, and everybody just assumes it's some sort of disease because not everybody at Central Baptist is gone, and not everybody in this room will leave. Some of you will not. He will come because that's the power of who and what we are. So our job is to listen to that Holy Spirit, pray what he tells us to pray, believe that, and allow him to make the difference. We're not here to change our culture. We're here to win people and make disciples out of a culture that is opposed and always will be to our Savior. President Chairman of the Deacons, Zeddy Boyd, told me this week, talked about the fact that how his wife impacted him individually as a child of God. Chairman of the Deacons before that, Bob Gilliland. His daughter grew up in our youth group. I knew her well, knew his son, his wife. They prayed for him. Year after year after year, prompting of the Holy Spirit, prayed for him. And finally, one Sunday morning out of the blue, Bob walks down this aisle, asks Jesus Christ in his heart. I pray with him. I work with him some discipleship, some other guy's disciple, and he winds up the last two years being the chairman of deacons. It is not our job to fix this culture. They are unfixable. But those inside the culture that our prayers move mountains in, we love and bring to discipleship in our Savior. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was the purpose of the first temple. They blew it. It's the purpose of you and me. Let's make sure we don't miss it. Let's pray.